Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. 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 And unfortunately, Ben is away this week um, and stuck in a land without internet. He will tell you more about that in a short dispatch later. But as that counts as something he is doing this week, we first address the question of feedback. We had quite a lot of uh, feedback from two sources uh, this week, although scattered around the social web. Um, so I guess it behooves me to uh, start by saying Google+, Plus. if that's a thing you care about, we do have a Google+, Plus community. It has four members, but if you like to use Google+, Plus, go ahead and use it. That's great. Um, so, feedback. Firstly from uh, Charles. Uh, the only possible Canoman pun is the invention Canoman from the animated Tick episode Tick vs. Science, where we'll put his YouTube link that he uh, put into um, the show notes so you can see Canoman uh, and imagine that the uh, researcher on rationality, Canoman, is indeed that particular person. Uh, Charles also had car trouble and uh, he has, you know, basically been cheered up by uh, being the best backfeeder thus far. And well done, Charles. You still remain in that position as far as I'm aware. But um, it's worth noting that. Uh, uh, it, it, it's not going to really get you places being the best fact feeder on this podcast. It offers no transport ability. If it did, uh, then presumably being the hosts would allow me to get places, and that does not happen when I do not have a car. Although I do now have a working car. It's called the Sunlight Franchise. Yes, that is a Millennium Falcon um, pseudonym. Uh, it's yellowy, and uh, that is the thing that I'm driving about at the minute, which is interesting. So, uh, yes... While we're on the topic of uh, Charles, or as his students call him, Dr. Hackney, uh, we've had an email in from one of those students uh, from Briarcrest College. Uh, apparently, our pronunciation of Saskatchewan, again, thank you how I met your mother, uh, to be better than many attempts. Well, that's what you get when you talk to North Americans. Um, apparently, uh, she has witnessed uh, Dr. Hackney's uh, rants on the horrors of psychology magazines um, and he has used it as a counterexample of what you should use as sources. Uh, apparently this particular student who um, is uh, called Alicia, uh, her area is applied linguistics, but doing the introduction to psychology with Dr Hackney has given her a genuine appreciation for psychology. Something that me and Ben, we do have it. We may not show it, but we do have it. And apparently uh, terror management theory was... Uh, especially fascinating obviously something we covered in our second episode because we agreed that it was fascinating she says thank you for recognizing a knowledgeable and skilled professor so uh, well done charles uh, at least one of your students likes you isn't that nice additionally looking in the email box um, although prompted in that direction by uh, twitter first i'm not normally in charge of the email we have a long email from uh, gordon i'll just touch on key points because uh, I've already recorded this bit once, and my new microphone just kind of dissolved it into static. I suspect it's going to turn evil and kill us all. Um, so, yes, we may have missold Gordon's um, series, but uh, as it's going to be coming hopefully soon from Lander Productions, you'll be able to see it for yourself, so I won't give you any more plot spoilers, so you can enjoy it uh, as it should be enjoyed. Um, apparently Gordon is a bit scared of uh, Karen, Kevin Warwick, the uh, cyborg professor, because... Uh, Apparently he has spouted Cyberman-based ideology, and personally I think once you're a Doctor Who fan, every problem is going to look like a Cyberman or a Dalek in the end, but this idea that everyone will be upgrading um, 
themselves and those who don't or can't are going to be outcasts. Uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, it is interesting that you can kind of end up with that ideology when the evidence of sci-fi kind of proves that it's going to be a bad idea. Uh, so, uh, Gordon quite appreciated my study on ums and ums, which is nice because I didn't think it was the best one I've done. Um, but, uh, yes, I'm going to quote a bit for Ben now. He may never listen to this, although, you know, as a Demi-episode, he's often interested to hear what I said behind his back. Um, here's something from Gordon that I think Ben will like and that maybe is deeply offensive to me. Also, I must say, Ben, that I no longer have a preference for your marvellously witty cohort, Timothy Swan, as I previously had, and do still try to picture him as a less punchable David Tennant with a shorter face. But then I saw him on YouTube. Also, I can't... Oh, yeah, I was trying to remember where I was on YouTube. And that hair. I could write many marvellous and elaborate insults about that hair. Um, well, apparently, yeah, really doesn't like my hair. Well, uh, it's quite it's quite important that you understand that... The hair is what gives me the power. It's dangerous. It's Cthulhuid. Its reach extends through time and space. You shouldn't insult the hair. Why do you think I haven't dared cut it? Um, apparently, I'm still awesome, but not the suave debonair genius that he imagined me to be. More just a genius. Well, I don't really know how to take that. <laughs> You're saying I'm not suave or debonair. I, I, I knew that. I'd come to terms with that. I'm happy with being called a genius. So, uh, yes, apparently we uh, uh, requested a film based on ourselves. I don't remember doing that, but it sounds like something I would do. And if I could be bothered to uh, set up the soundboard, I would press the Zach Johnson, sounds like the sort of thing Timothy Swan would say, think, but I I haven't got the soundboard open. Uh, So, yes, here is the film plot, uh, as suggested by Gordon. Open on Tim Swan and Ben Phil recording their podcast in an actual recording studio because in this universe they've got Adam and Joe's job. Well, in my universe, that is the Collins and Long job, so just saying. Hashtag just saying. Professor Karen Warwick decides to finally to upgrade himself. Now evil, he decides to recruit people to join his cyber army by going to a convention. Tim is there recording a podcast at the convention, plausible, and witnesses Professor Karen Warwick building his cyber army and decides to investigate on the premise of doing an academic study on the psychology of cyborgs. The results prove evil. Um, I'd like to inject at this point that one of the things that helped get me into Oxford was reading a book of postgraduate uh, research on the psychology of cyborgs, so it is a subject that's actually quite close to my heart, um, or my brain, uh, or my... uh, cybernetic enhancements uh, meanwhile Ben Fell is at a territorial army open day which <laughs> uh, uh, it's funny because Ben lives near a barracks <laughs> when Tim phones him about the cyber uprising or sends him a google talk that he for some reason doesn't see despite supposedly being online um, the rest of the movie is Tim investigating the cyborg uprising hey I'm part of a detective agency I don't know what you're talking about conducting a more academically sound study on the evils of the cyborgs again not great at research uh, one of these demi episodes I will do the complete of my research from uh, university it wasn't great while well, Ben builds a cyber hacking gun toting army to save the day and if I'm writing it at some point, the Farshnook will probably turn up, in which case he will defeat the cyborgs, but uh, will have to defeat him as he's a cannibalistic, misogynist, elder god in human form. It's an interesting online identity to have, and it's probably immortal as well. We'll see about that. Uh, so, yes. I mean, Gordon does win back some points for the whole hair insults thing by suggesting that James McAvoy should play me and Paul Bettany should play Ben. Well... I, I like that idea, although I'd never trust a film with Paul Bettany playing someone's friend, because I think it'll end up just being inside... Uh, his uh, head um, I'd quite like to see James McAvoy with my hair 
and maybe no one else would, but they, they'd see that the, the hair is what makes me me. Um, so yes, back to a little bit from Charles. Uh, all due respect to Scroobius Pip. I just love a sentence that starts that way. I think that's a brilliant start to a sentence. But after his thoroughly uninspiring performance in Sweeney Todd, now when I read that sentence, I found it syntactically very confusing <laughs> because I thought it meant that Scroobius Pip was in Sweeney Todd. I would watch that version. Uh, I simply do not buy the idea of Johnny Depp as a serial killer. Right, well, um, I thought it was okay, but musicals, you know, musicals. Um, maybe uh, the whole of Le Mis happened in Russell Crowe's head in a cut sequence from A Beautiful Mind. So finally, back to Gordon. It's been a very yeah, Gordon and Charles dominated week. Although we did have Alicia in the middle, but she is one of Charles's students, so he gets some credit, I guess. Just listen to episode forty-nine. Oh, sweet mint imperials, which I have to admit is a great exclamation. That outro, the ballad of Danny Dyer, it needs to be on YouTube as a viral music video. Well, yes, it does. If anyone's good at making videos and has a, a plan of how to do that, then by all means go ahead and let us know you're doing it so we can help in any way we can. But video, not really our things. Anyway, that is all the extended feedback that I have recorded half of twice because I love you all. All of you feedbackers, even the ones who insult my hair, revenge will be coming uh, in some way, shape or form. Um, but the real question is, what's the next section? What have we done this week? So, this week I've not done really all that much. I just suppose I wanted to say something about watching the Six Nations final, uh, the uh, rugby match, and losing to Wales that thoroughly has been a bit painful. Being mocked by a Welsh colleague for being an English person who cares about rugby, who lost in the final to Wales so horribly. I mean, you know, I can't offer the greatest analysis because I'm not completely adept with the sport, but it does seem like we were just doing stupid things. And I often say this about the rugby teams I support. You know, stupid, meaningless mistakes and then kicking when you shouldn't. Uh, I really hate kicking when you shouldn't. I'm not sure kicking really should be part of rugby. Um, I think it should be, you know, like an entirely hand-based sport, maybe. I don't know what would happen if you got rid of that. Um, how you'd do, like, conversions. Maybe that would be the one time you'd be allowed the forward throw or something. Um, I'm just inventing a new version of Aussie Rules Football or something, or... Uh, worse still American football um, but uh, yes but at least you know got to sit with my dad and you know eat snacks watch the game just like Super Bowl but without adverts because of the BBC <laughs> that would be great you know if if there was still the Empire the Super Bowl would just not be that important a thing it'd be you know like the FA Cup final or something where it's um, put on the national broadcaster without advertising and like half of the people who would normally tune in do not um but that is me doing my kind of revanchist approach to um british imperialism which is it's a joke i think it's bad i'm not Niall ferguson i'm not michael gove i do not believe the british empire was overall really a force for good it was mostly a force for imperialism which is a bad thing I don't know why I feel the need to clarify this, but I, I think it is important to stress in a time when, you know, Britain is changing its history curriculum to be very pro-imperial and to ignore the contributions of black people, for example, um, which is, you know, just, it really upsets me and it frustrates me. And, you know, I'm white and middle class. I can't imagine how it feels when it, you're part of these kind of increasingly marginalised group in the historical narrative that's being presented of our country. Not that all of you listeners are including that but yeah education policy will affect you somehow i guess 
Anyway, I will uh, now throw to the tiny contribution I have from, uh, from Ben to tell you what he's doing. Uh, and if you thought my comments on uh, the BBC being the world's broadcaster and broadcasting the Super Bowl were in some way offensive, wait till you hear Ben's accent this week. Uh, we're about to lose half a country uh, in rage against what this southern English man is doing. Um, but it did make me laugh. Hello, Tim. Hello, Psychomediaers. Uh, sadly, I'm once again unable to join you this week since I'm continuing in my world tour of places with rubbish internet. Having found New York and Australia to be a little too pedestrian and boring for my tastes, I decided to out the ante, which is why I'm recording this from a delightful B&B on the outskirts of Oldham, Greater Manchester. Unfortunately, I think the internet here is being disrupted by the sheer volume of sheep outside my window, so I've had to prepare this pre-recorded message. Consequently, I've been unable to prepare anything even vaguely psychological, since said internet connection can't even seem to manage loading PDFs of journal articles. However, all is not lost, since after about an hour, I have managed to load a single Wikipedia page, which, as you probably know by now, is where we get most of our research from. So, in the interests of maintaining a consistent and factual content, I am going to read a few short excerpts from the Wikipedia page for the Greater Manchester Region, which, in the interests of maintaining appropriate levels of humour and offence, I shall attempt to read in an authentic Mancunian accent. <clears throat> Greater Manchester is a metropolitan county in northwest England, with a population of 2.68 million. It encompasses one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United Kingdom and comprises 10 metropolitan boroughs, Bolton, Berry, Oldham, Rochdale, Stockport, Lampung, Jambi, Benkulu, Bunkabelitung and Riau. Greater Manchester experiences a temperate maritime climate, like most of the British Isles, with relatively cool summers and mild winters. The main variable of Manchester's climate is not temperature or air pressure, but rainfall. In September and May, high pressure over the Gobi Desert moves winds from that continent towards the northwest. As the winds reach the equator, the Earth's rotation causes them to veer off their original course in a northeasterly direction towards the southeast mainland. During January and February, a corresponding low-pressure system causes the pattern to reverse, resulting in a monsoon which produces significant amounts of rainfall across the region. Contrary to its reputation as an urban sprawl, Greater Manchester has a green belt, constraining its urban drift and a wide and varied range of wildlife and natural habitat. For instance, the wooded valleys of Bolton, Bury and Stockport, the moorlands north and east of Rochdale, Oldham and Stalybridge, and the mineral-rich volcanic highlands of Gao and Lintong harbour flora and fauna of national importance. Greater Manchester is home to 201 mammal species and 580 bird species, including the common sterling, the Bolton fruit bat, the Eurasian magpie, the Mancunian tapir, the sulphur-clouded leopard, the feral pigeon, the Wigan tiger, and the Indonesian mountain weasel. So, there, there you go. I hope that was informative. Uh, I certainly learned some things I didn't know about Greater Manchester. Uh, now I'm off to see if the other page I was trying to access has finished loading, so I can do my homework on Sumatra for Journal Club. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed uh, Tim's Demi-podcast, whatever it may be. Uh, I'd also like to thank the, propri the proprietor of the Cherry Clough Farm Bed and Breakfast for their excellent provision of both of those things. Uh, that's all from me. Until next week, ta-ra! So that was Ben there auditioning for a part in the uh, new series of Frasier uh, as one of, what, I don't know, Daphne's nephews or something. Uh, I did very much appreciate the uh, list of species there. I have not listened to that live. I listened to it earlier, so I knew where to uh, put it. But um, 
yes, I'm sure he's doing vital research on uh, the populations up there that is going to really change things for social integration in Britain. Um, and if not him, then the girlfriend um, pioneering the way there. Um, I can only hope that he will just be able to heal some of the wounds that he has just caused. So we move on to the third section of our highly structured show. So, to continue the trend of self-indulgence on demi-podcasts, my media of the week is something that I created, but that someone else chose to feature this week, as it is a poem that was selected as a daily deviation on popular, indeed supposedly the most popular art community online, uh, website DeviantArt, uh, and place often scuppered by its name, um, and by its reputation for being the home of badly traced anime, but it's also the home of uh, literature as well, sometimes. Uh, for poetry, I've really yet to find a better place to be. Um, but yes, they featured a poem from February 2011, so over two years old, uh, as one of their, well, if not the only, the best poem of the day uh, this week, or one of the days, I forget which, Tuesday? I'm going with Tuesday. Time is fluid. Um, so, <laughs> in the theme of reading things on the uh, show, I thought I would uh, read it out and put in a link so you can see what the one of the gallery directors for literature thinks the fuss is all about. So yes, this is a poem called The Explosion Coil. You come across something you have studied and sometimes seen, and it eats you up with a hunger that makes you want to bow... You come across something you have studied and sometimes seen, and it eats you up with a hunger that makes you want to bite down and chow down and go down. Like you've suddenly been compressed, and medicine doesn't do a thing, and medicine doesn't do a damning thing, to slow me down and to cap my desire, to keep me from running and never stopping, going on the cold streets and never relenting the pace. There is a serpent coiled, and it is me. There is a serpent coiled within me, and this creativity is a delusion and is therefore perfect. I need a million adorers and an entourage and to breathe, because I'm panting inside. Stop me. Come up here and stop me. I've become the burning branch, the spur of action, pressing in on myself. A hedonist who finds her pleasure in speed. And suddenly I'm struck with deja vu, for a time that may not have existed. For pretending, for playing a game, deadly game, with outrageous consequences that I've developed for myself. For a while I was manic, running only on adrenaline, pumped up on energetic music that I yelped out into inviting silence. On being the focal point... I'm trying to get the motion out of my arms and my legs and my... You wrote this when you were. You redacted the reality, but not the feeling of. I'm worn now, but for a while there was something in me new, dangerous, a hungry force of a familiar sort, a bouncing need, a more than physical physicality. Down might lead to up. Fear? It's more dangerous because we long to embrace it. So there we go, that is my that is the poem that I'm featuring as Media of the Week, as featured on DeviantArt's Daily Deviations, which did indeed make me very happy. Um, I don't have a great belabor segue, that was sort of on the theme of mania and hypermania uh, in poetic form rather than humorous form, obviously. Try and avoid joking about things that are not really that funny for people to have. Um, so uh, I can't tell you how I'm going to transition to today's topic Um Except that, you know, it's a sort of psychological poem. And then there's some psychology. Weak. Weak, I know. Um, and you know what else is weak? 
bureaucracy, bureaucracy and organisations that are structured badly. And I'm going to look at the psychology of that uh, for reasons that maybe will become clear in a future episode. Bureaucracy. We've all been to a job centre called Telephone Customer Service, tried to get something done in local government within our place of work or in an organisation we're involved in. The Kafkaesque nightmares we have to deal with on a daily basis would have sent him madder earlier. Trying to get our telephone line sorted for a new broadband supplier. Trying to uncancel something that has been cancelled for no good reason. It seems that a sort of societal madness has captured previously reasonable people. So I wanted to look at some research that addresses this. To start, a paper by Douglas Labeer. That is definitely how you pronounce his name, with a separation between the la and the beer. This study touches on controversial ground as it appears to be from a psychoanalytic approach. However, it does base itself on an interesting idea that also appears in, for example, everyday psychopaths. This is the idea that one can be successful in one's career whilst having some kind of psychopathology. And the contrary idea that one can suffer no mental health issues whatsoever, but nevertheless appear to thanks to one's job and social character. They bring in psychoanalytic theorist Eric Fromm, whom I'd encountered in philosophy. He's a person who suggested that fascism is all about having freedom from freedom. It provides a sense of psychological security because people know what to think, whereas needing to freely discover what is right or true is actually quite challenging and terrifying. Anyway, his theory of uh, psychopathology, that's a small side, by the way. We're not really talking about psychopaths as just people who have got something a bit wrong with their mind or brain. Um, is that it's based on development. Full development to being adaptive to one's situation is the most helpful, whereas the less development, the less healthy one is. And this leads to pathological emotional states, uh, being psychoanalysting, for example, says a need for incestual symbiosis, which I, I guess we'd say not, not literally, but problems with attachment and security. Narcissism, which doesn't have to be pathological, right? And deadening control. Essentially, those who are not emotionally stable, Fromm says, are trying to have the passive omnipotence of babies. They can't do anything, and yet they're somehow really powerful. So that's interesting. It doesn't really resemble psychopathology, small or big sigh, as I recognise it, but it's clearly not emotionally healthy. So they suggest that the far side of normal, the positive side, uh, was described by Spinoza, but it's sort of the same as Maslow, this idea of self-actualisation, positive reasoning, the rest. If only Spinoza hadn't ground glass for lenses and thus gone blind, he could be hated by first-year sociology students around the world. They contrast this idea of psychopathology with that of social acceptability and adaptation to social conditions, and essentially the differences between the internal and the external. One's thoughts can be extremely narcissistic, but until this alters one's behaviour to such an extent that it's socially unacceptable, it would not be considered abnormal. Obviously, podcast hosts are held to different standards. There, that is it. That is an actual, natural, self-referential joke as defined by Wikipedia. And then there is a callback to something that only I remember from a previous episode. Narcissism, everybody. Narcissism. So, apparently, the study of work and the workplace has not been especially popular in the psychoanalytic literature compared to the subject of love, uh, which is fitting to Freud, their founder. There's one key study mentioned in this particular paper, um... 
1971, has described how work may threaten to confront grandiose fantasies with disappointing reality. And yep, that's about right. Uh, as I'm recording, it was the day of the budget. Um, this is an improvised political section, because Ben can't stop me. Um, you think actually George Osborne would probably be a great example of this. You know, obviously the son of a baronet, this idea of being a good leader for the country uh, and obviously the sort of right to rule element of that must be severely punctured by the disappointing reality of everyone booing him and everyone hating him but you know it's probably more mundane for us in our everyday lives perhaps I, you know I, when I go into work I'm conscious that I'm not the best person at doing my job and most of the time I like to believe I'm the best at what I'm doing even if there's no real proof for that but work more frequently than perhaps some areas, offers proof of the contrary. Now, in corporate culture, adaptiveness differs from that considered by Spinoza and the humanist, not that sort of humanist, or that sort of humanist, uh, sociologists or psychologists. Again, we're back to the everyday psychopaths. For example, Macoby, who appears to be the main source of um, inspiration for uh, Labia, um, found that in tech companies, those at the top had adapted with innovation, teamwork and flexibility, but many lacked compassion, generosity or idealism because those traits were not adaptive to that working environment. They weren't showing clinical levels of psychopathology, but they told Macoby of not being happy despite their successful careers, lacking compassion, being emotionally cool, not emotionally cool, but emotionally cool, emotionally numb, emotionally frigid, emotionally dead inside due to a lack of metabolic activity, some spoke of their inability to love human human what is this thing you call love well corporate guy it's an emotion human human what is this thing you call emotion that's uh sergey brin there for psychomedia google burn get rid of my reader will you i'll have my revenge on you and you gordon um these guys couldn't be what the author of this uh, paper, Le, Le, oh, I'm really worried about pronouncing this wrongly. Le, la Labia, Labia, not Le. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Oh. Labia. They couldn't be fully human, according to him. Quite harsh. So, uh, I think I'm going to call him Doug, you know, like the uh, TV show. Early 90s Nickelodeon. Come on, we all remember the early 90s Nickelodeon show Doug, right? Anyway, Doug figured that bureaucracy that is a work environment with a high level of corporate structure, might push people from so-called normalcy to this subclinical zone of psychopathology. And, and beyond. Uh, either by stifling people, or by promoting people with character traits that we probably shouldn't value. His first example is, of course, the SS. So I'll quote the paragraph because it's brilliantly mad. An extreme example of the latter situation would be the SS organisation in Nazi Germany. There, one may argue, the organisation strengthened the development of statistic and destructive passions of people working within it. In fact, such passions, which are examples of perversions of the heart, were adaptive and successful in relation to the purpose and mission of the SS. In such a situation, one finds, in effect, sick people who are well adapted to sick work. Yet, if no overt symptoms are observed, such people would be considered normal. One may argue, with whom? Neo-Nazis. Is this, this this major thing in the study of the Second World War? It's like, well, the SS 
terrible thing, did terrible things to people. But uh, the human resources department and personal development, continuing professional development, it really promoted the well-being of SS staff and officers. Of course, I don't know that this isn't true, but it seems unlikely. Um, anyway, there are four main approaches to the research of this sort of idea that sick people are good at sick work, um, but good people can be made sick by sick work. Um, there's uh, intensive interviews, so that's good. Very data-rich. Clinical material, again, good. Uh, dream analysis and Rorschach tests. So uh, let's hope that we can make some conclusions just from the first two of those. Well, the findings show a few things. Firstly, the contradiction mentioned at the start. Some people are diagnosably mentally ill, but don't show any signs of being abnormal. And I use inverted commas, obviously, whenever we're talking about psychopathology, because pretty much all of us have some kind of psychopathology. Um, and some who show symptoms in the work environment considered symptomatic of mental illness, but they don't have an underlying problem. And now clearly the crosswise ones also exist. People who have psychopathological issues that mean that they can't carry on working and people who are, uh, are adaptive to life and work and thus do well. So... Right in the midst of this, we suddenly spot the evidence of a political agenda. What sort of bureaucracy is going to cause problems due to it pushing people towards psychopathology? Apparently, it's the higher-ups in various federal agencies, because the goals of such roles are apparently the intimidation of subordinates and pushing programmes through quickly. And that is what, you know, the job description of every head of every federal agency is. By comparison, normal people can be healthy within bureaucracy, but this is only the case in the field of auditing, fiscal analysis and science and technology. So, yeah, this guy, uh, Doug, has seemed to have picked on the federal government quite at random here. So, what are the characteristics of what are called the irrational adaptives? That is to say, the people who are, in some sense, ill. Um, actually, um, Doug uses the word sick quite a lot. I'm not quite happy with that. Um, who are psychologically have problems, have psychological issues. Language is tricky. Um, well, but then do well at work. Apparently, lust for power and glory, greed, and a desire to subjugate and or destroy others. That is to say, Conan the Barbarian. What is best in life? To rise to the top of the corporate ladder and hear the lamentations of your subordinates. So this fits Latbeer. Oh, I wrote his name again. Doug says, with the top of the federal bureaucracy where one must appear tough, put others down, and be able to create a seeming flurry of activity in response to problems, even if it actually achieves nothing. This includes memos. Memos are an important tool in the arsenal of the irrational adaptive. So, the power of the authority within your small pond increases the illusion of, and desire for, power. So, whilst the people who end up this way are usually talented and capable, other facets are squeezed out by the megalomania. These individuals apparently rarely have conscious conflict beyond a little disquiet, but then there is the subconscious stuff, like recurring dreams of walking around an empty office. Look, now our dreams episode showed that there was evidence of meaning in dreams, but it's not enough to go on, especially when you're trying to demonstrate, as um, uh, Doug puts it, eroticised lust for power. Other irrational adaptives are quite different. They are pathologically dependent and submissive, and thus end up in middle management. Man, it is like this article new. I subscribe to the Dilbert RSS today. The example they cite is a man who is depressed and anxious in his personal life, but finds stability by being told what to do. The monster! Supposedly, this leads him to seek humiliation, but no example or evidence of this is given. Now, of course, situational change can suddenly undo what looks like good adaptation. 
I, I know it's not always great to read large chunks out from a study, but this case study is both spot on and stripe off. Well, what, what would you call the opposite of spot on? Suggestions in the comments, please. Um, here we go. Mr. E, now in his late 40s, once had a flourishing and rapidly rising career as a hatchet man under a sadistic and self-centred manager who was particularly close with the agency head and who served under appointment of then-President Nixon. With a gradual change of leadership in the agency and eventually the development of a more participative and cooperative organisational structure within his part of the agency, Mr. E began openly to undermine his new superiors, place obstacles in the path of cooperative work efforts and increasingly demanded recognition for his vast experience and knowledge. He began to disrupt meetings and avoided carrying out the directives of superiors. A study of Mr. E's character and attitudes reveals strong sadomasochistic passions, previously adaptive to work, which have now in a sense broken loose. Unconsciously, he seeks a godfather to control and protect him. He had achieved this, in fact, during the earlier, more successful part of his career. During that time, he had sought out a sadistic, vindictive, pr protective boss, and thus Mr. E had been able to function successfully within the organisation. Internally, Mr. E experiences resentment and rebellion, coupled with a need to obtain affection through submission. One observes that his sadomasochistic relationship with his father mirrored his later relationships with superiors at work. Infantile and narcissistic attitudes are interpreted from the Rorschach. He is therefore limited in his ability to deal with work that stimulates emotional aliveness or which requires independence of thought. Mr. E professes deep moral concerns and is quite active in some religious political issues within his community. But one finds that these concerns are not rooted in any particular principles. Rather, they appear motivated primarily by unconscious resentment of authority and the need to rebel against it. Since Mr. E works best doing detailed, colourless work under a benign godfather-type boss, his irrational passions have erupted under the recent change of leadership and work structure. He now appears openly troubled at work. So yeah, philosophical change in organisation is going to be especially difficult for someone who's been selected for their bad qualities. Whether any of that unconscious stuff, especially the stuff out of the Rorschach, actually figures in this uh, scenario, I'd say it wouldn't. Obviously it wouldn't. But that's me. Because the Rorschach test is nonsense. Anyway, what about the normal non-adaptives, those caused problems by the systems and the structures? Basically, good qualities are turned into bad ones. Loyalty into submission, leadership into dominance, and so forth. Apparently this happens because one doesn't just progress up a hierarchy without impedance, but one expects to. Nor does one simply walk into Mordor. Similarly, situational stress is always ongoing. Stagnation of opportunities contributes to greater infighting. One quite good example of how workplace stresses can create seeming pathology was someone who was promoted three grades up as an acting supervisor. Without adequate support from a boss who proved critical, she began to be paranoid, became dishevelled, and was seen singing to herself loudly in the toilets. As soon as she was returned to her original position, these psychiatric-like symptoms disappeared. She'd simply been pushed beyond what she could have managed by a system that then did not support her to engage with that difficult task. So, the conclusions of this particular study. Therapists need to be aware of the impact of working environments, so many of which in the bureaucratic area foster pathological attitudes and symptoms. People need to remember self-fulfillment and avoid careerism. This sort of research, hopefully to my mind, of course, moving away from the unhelpful parts of the psychoanalytic background, such as dream analysis and Rorschach tests, and focusing on the intensive interaction that it does do well, should help us improve well-being in the workplace. As Doug rightly points out, large bureaucracies characterise not only our own society, but more and more of the nations of the world, as they increasingly industrialise. Understanding what large bureaucracies do to people's mental state is very important.
You can't always get what you want because I won't do that. So the next paper by Vyman is uh, titled Dealing with Bureaucracy, the Effectiveness of Different Persuasive Appeals. It's about an experiment finding what persuasive techniques work with which bureaucracies, and hence the singing. According to Max Weber, who to me is the star of Plethric Pundagarans, the webcomic, more than really an existing academic, uh, where he indeed hangs out with Marx and Durkheim, the three founders of sociology. Boo, but Karl Marx, yay, I'm so torn. According to Weber, the um, characteristics of bureaucracy are impersonality, universality, and effective neutrality, and those all seem reasonable ways to describe bureaucracy. Uh, the positives, therefore, is that everyone gets treated the same, regardless of background or how nice they are, but the procedures will likely be slow, rigid, and inefficient. Later sociologists suggest that there is a personality component which, just like we've just discussed, by which I mean I've just talked to you about, personalities fitting this bureaucratic character are honed or selected. And yet, even if the theory is based on this rigid inflexible setup, in the real world, all social interactions contain some sort of social exchange of reward and reciprocation. This should lead certain individuals in the bureaucracy to do informal, flexible things in response to the social interaction of the client. Obviously, the two models contrast and an experiment can be set up to compare them. The universalist model of Weber will only allow legitimate appeals. The social exchange model will suggest that illegitimate illegitimate appeals, illegitimate appeals, illegitimate appeals that give a benefit to the bureaucrat or allow them to practice altruism will succeed. There are some examples of this happening in immigration with customs officials, but not all bureaucracy is alike. Some are set up to purely help the client, such as welfare and medical organisations. Some are set up to help society rather than individuals, such as the police or customs. Some are set up to help the clients and the owner of the organisation, like insurance companies. And the final group are set up to build hyperspace bypasses. Not quite sure where Labir's example of the SS fits into those three classifications. So, to study this, they got their students to contact various organisations with requests over the telephone. They chose the telephone because they believe that the powerful female combination of Lady Gaga and Beyoncé is the overarching duet of the 21st century. Wait, no, I misread that. Uh, they chose it because it reduces variables such as appearance, allows standardisation and recording, and focuses the listener on the content above all else. So they contacted various organisations with requests and varied the appeal of one of four types. The normative, your organisation is meant to provide this service. The altruistic, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Of course, you could argue that the Jedi are not the first type of bureaucracy, but the third is the Jedi grows in enlightenment by the help they offer to the galaxy. Um, then, of course, there's the reciprocal, the reciprocal positive. I will find a way to reward you for this. And the reciprocal negative. If you won't help me, I'll complain about you. So, they contacted a telephone information service, the Department of Customs, and one of the biggest insurance companies in Israel. They were doing this research in Israel. It wasn't like they figured that Israel has some sort of special bureaucracy in its insurance companies. Although, it probably does. I mean, have you ever tried to get insurance as the Druze? Uh, yeah, the Druze. Not the Jews, the Druze. Look it up. So, the things they were looking for lay between the legitimate and the illegitimate. For the telephone service, they were looking for someone by name, but not address. They picked people that it would be impossible to find without looking by some other detail, which the directory is not really supposed to do. I still quite like stalking, though. For customs, they were asking for an old rate of customs duty on an important 
imported car, which seems less tricky, and then for insurance companies, asking something about an accumulated sum. Don't ask me about that. My experience with insurance companies does not involve the accumulation of sums. They measured the final outcome, the time taken to persuade the official, and the emotional attitude of the official. And this last one was coded by some official coding setup. Once they'd done it, they'd analysed it with a log-linear setup, which is as difficult as falling off a log. What, you find that easy? I only find impossible things easy. For example, the other day, I trapped my jumper in a cafetiere and couldn't get it out without help. I know. Still, apparently, this sort of analysis is best for when there's a few options rather than lots of continuous qualitative data. Or, as some might call it, continuous quantitative data, but not me about 10 minutes ago writing this. So, between positive and negative final outcome and the like. They use the words dichotomous and my new favourite word, perhaps polychotomous, um, <laughs> for when dichotomous is not enough. So, they found that the best models are those that include both of the independent variables. Apparently this works because the type of appeal affects all the dependent variables, but the organisation type only significantly affects the emotional response. I think this suggests that you probably still get a response, but an insurance company might be more grumpy about it. And in terms of the individual impact of the different sorts of the appeal, the altruistic positively impacted all the outcome measures as did the reciprocal positive, though less so. Um, the normative appeal slightly reduced all of the dependent variables, and the reciprocal negative greatly reduced all of them. However, there were interactions. Many, many significant interactions. Uh, in the four society organisations, altruism worked best, but any sort of reciprocal interaction reduced the chances of success. In the owner and client organisation, reciprocal appeals, especially positive, worked best, whereas normal or altruistic reduced the chances of success. So it's surprising that there were still main effects with this level of variety and interaction. Finally, in the client-serving organisation, reciprocal negative led to a better final outcome and emotional response, but normative gave the fastest response. Effect size-wise, it was the altruism in society and the reciprocal in owner and client that had the largest effect sizes, which probably is why you end up with those main effects. So, Weber was probably wrong in his monolithic view. Blame Stanley Kubrick. But when it comes to areas of potential flexibility, one must consider the type of organisation to tune the appeal. They believe that this is based on the strength of the client relative to the organisation. The weaker the client seems, the more they should use an appeal fitting to that, like altruism. Obviously, this is based on one representative company for each category, but they're aware of this and have still gone further than other researchers in the area who simply looked at how clients felt their appeals had done rather than the objective outcomes. And so, they say, the type of appeal joins the many factors, the many fractures, the many factors, the many map fractions, the many factors that shouldn't but do affect one's interaction with bureaucracy. And perhaps it's navigating this complex tangled web that makes the experience so frustrating. So, that is my thoughts and research on bureaucracy for the time being, the difficult and frustrating process that it is. Um, if you've got experiences of bureaucracy and no secrets of what works, where altruism is the best ploy or reciprocal negative, you know, the I'm taking you with me sort of approach, um, do write in if that is a thing that you are interested in. If so, seriously why this was just to get some stuff off my chest basically which most podcasts are in essence anyway um yeah you can contact the show uh facebook.com slash psychomedia uh at team psychomedia on twitter 
the Psychomedia tag on Tumblr. What else? Uh, Psychomedia podcast at gmail.com. We had two emails this week. Very exciting. And of course, psychomedia.wordpress.com, where you get links, videos, uh, images, and anything else that makes it take ages to load. Sad face. Um, so that is that. Um, hopefully, myself and Ben will be back next week. We make no promises because we can't make promises about anything. The future is always in motion. Um, but something will be there for you to listen to uh, next week. Until then, goodbye for now. (laughs) Bye-bye. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under the attack, and I'm afraid that my mission to bring you to Aldran has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid delivered safely to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Ah, now, Princess Leia, I'm General Kenobi's HR administrator. Have you uh, filled out those uh, forms in triplicate? The only hope form is form ANH4, and you must not fill in section 13. Please sign in the box marked not for application signature. Yes, I know that it's odd that you sign exactly where it shouldn't. And I hope your space CRB comes back clean. Oh, it's not looking good for you, Princess. I see from the Space Criminal Records Bureau check that you are a member of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Good day to you. Good day, I say.